The year was 1965 on a 54-mile journey from Selma to Montgomery in Alabama. Alabama, a state steeped in the harshness of segregation and racism. A series of marches as a result of the death of many events, but particularly the shooting of Jimmy Lee Jackson at the hands of a state trooper. Jackson was a church deacon from Marion, Alabama, and while attempting to protect his mother from the blows of a police nightstick, he was shot and died eight days later in a Selma hospital. Refusing to remain silent after the death of Jackson, on March 7th, the community march from Selma to the state capital of Montgomery began. Martin Luther King Jr. was in Atlanta, however, he trusted the leadership to the hands of his SCLC representatives. The late Representative John Lewis, who was a young civil rights activist at the time, and Hosea Williams. The two led the march as they crossed the infamous Edmund Pettus Bridge. They were met with a large blockade of Alabama state troopers and other area law enforcement. The local Sheriff Clark and Major John Cloud demanded the marchers to turn back. However, when they did not, the Major gave the order for his men to attack the peaceful protesters with clubs and tear gas. Plus, police on horseback pushed and beat the marchers in front of onlookers, including the media that broadcast the scene nationally. Many of the protesters believed that they would die this day, and the event became known as Bloody Sunday. History Notes takes this episode to talk to law enforcement leaders who deemed it important to walk the 54-mile journey from Selma to Montgomery in August of 2020, some 55 years later, just over a year for each mile. We invited Deputy Chief Sean Barnes and Officer Obed Magney to discuss why it was important for them to take the journey as two of three African-American law enforcement leaders in the midst of a national social justice and racial reckoning that began just a few months prior. We'll hear their story, talk about the strong emotions evoked, and the challenges faced by many black men who donned the blue uniform. Let's walk this journey from Selma to Montgomery on History Notes. Welcome to History Notes. I'm your host, Rodney Dawson, Curator of Education at the Greensboro History Museum. And as I've often stated, uh, coming from the classroom, I was looking for ways to um, help the classroom experience for an educator. So we created this podcast called History Notes, and it's, the hope is you can use it to build a lesson plan around or supplement a lesson plan. But since we started in 2018, we found that Sunday school teachers can use this. Anyone is just a lifelong uh, learner. Um, and we try to show how history shapes what we're going through today. And uh, so we wanted to reach and, and find out what's going on across the, uh, the nation. And we have some folks with some ties to North Carolina and uh, just some folks with some ties to society. Um, and we happen to be pleased to have with us uh, uh, Sean Barnes, uh, uh, formerly a deputy chief of Salisbury, North Carolina, now residing in uh, Chicago. And then we also have uh, Dr. Oh, Dr. Sean Barnes as well, but Dr. Obed Magney. He's a police officer in Sacramento, California. Uh, so we thank you for joining us today for this uh, episode of History Notes. Thank you for having me, Rodney. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, thank off the bat, you. thank you. Um, it's going to be interesting. We're, we're calling this the 54-mile journey, and I'm going to let you uh, explain it from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. I'm in North Carolina, so they're going to ask, why are we doing a story about some law enforcement officers that you happen to be? that march from Selma, U.S. Highway 80 uh, to Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, but before I get to that, um, 
why doctor behind your name? You you look at uh, people in law enforcement, you don't always associate um, that level of education. Why was it important for you, um, Deputy Chief Barnes, to put doctor behind your name? Well, for me, um, I've always felt that, um, you know, education is really that that vessel that we all need to get where we want where we're going um, you know uh, for me i started off uh, my phd journey uh, looking at racial profiling from an article that appeared in the new york times where then uh, being employed with the greensboro police department uh, we were supposed to have been the department that was the poster child for uh, racial profiling this came out in October of 2015. And so I was asked by the chief then to uh, kind of look at data and look at uh, what we were spending our time on to determine if this article had accurately depicted our police department. And in doing that journey, uh, Rodney, what I found out is that the data was correct. And indeed, even though the methodology may have been different from the methodology that I used in my dissertation, the outcomes were the same that you are more likely to be stopped and searched uh, by a police officer in Greensboro if you are a person of color as opposed to a person who is not of color. And so my journey was really a journey to discover um, how I could use data and science to uh, improve myself. Okay. In fact, uh, my colleague, uh, colleagues, uh, Dr. Obeg Magni and, and Tart McGuire, Deputy Police Chief in Arlington, uh, who unfortunately couldn't be with us today, we're all uh, NIJ uh, lead scholars. So the National Institute of Justice is the research arm of the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. and so they have a program where they select uh, what they consider to be the best and the brightest law enforcement officers from around the country who are conducting or using science to improve policing. And so the reason I have a PhD is because I want to use, be able to use science to improve police. Okay, and Dr. Obed Magni, uh, why doctor, you're a police officer in Sacramento, California. Um, why was it important for you uh, to put that behind your title as well? Uh, well, for me, it was a slightly different take. So for anybody who knows, working in law enforcement, especially if you're a police officer, you know, this isn't one of those banker jobs, right? <clears throat> White collar jobs, you walk in at eight in the morning, you work behind a desk, you know, at five o'clock, you go home, and then you have your normal weekends off. People get hurt in the job. People medically retire early. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes people don't get to come home. And for me, it was a different take in the sense that if I unexpectedly, let's say I broke my leg, you know, chasing a suspect or, you know, for whatever reason, I end up, you know, quit my job or I end up, you know, medically retiring or something like that what is my transition plan? And for me, you know, I've always had, you know, the desire to teach, you know, I could always see myself in a university, you know, you know, talking to students, doing research, kind of like, you know, what, you know, Dr. Barnes was talking about. And so, you know, for me, I was already looking at the second chapter of my life in the beginning of my career. So, it was important for me to set myself up in the event that that took place. You know, I retire at the age of 50 because in California, I mean, under the old retirement system where you could retire at 50. Um, I wanted to know, I wanted to set myself up for that transition plan and not find myself sitting around like, oh my goodness, what is my purpose in life? What am I going to do? Uh, what are those next steps I need to take? 
so, you know, I started taking those steps and, you know, like Dr. Bonds was saying, you know, I met him, met Tari through the NIJ Lead Scholars Program, uh, met some other like-minded folks who understood that research and policing and helping police into the 21st century and putting ourselves and leveraging uh, those contacts, leveraging the education and, and so on and so forth to move policing forward. Because if you talk to John, if you talk to Tar, if you talk to myself, you know, you'll always hear one common theme with us. And it's the drive and it's the passion of helping policing move forward so that it's safe for police officers, safe for communities, you know, build that trust and legitimacy gap, which we know right now is super frail, especially during these times, you know, with the incidents that took place in Wisconsin and, uh, you know, Louisiana and so on and so forth. So for me, not to say that I saw the tsunami coming 20 years ago, but it was important for me to continue my education and to put myself in a position of authority or to leverage my voice and my platform or to create that platform so that I can help make policing better for everyone. I asked the officers about the times we were in at the moment we were recording this podcast. Again, it was after the culminating death of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police in Minnesota that triggered nationwide protests. And then, in the midst of the protests, an unarmed 29-year-old African-American man named Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, resulting in more intense protest efforts and clashes. In fact, two protesters in Kenosha were shot and killed by a 17-year-old anti-protester who was said to be an admirer of the police and sought to do their job for them. We spoke with African-American law enforcement officials, Guilford County Sheriff Danny Rogers and Greensboro City Police Chief Brian James about being black law enforcement leaders during this time. However, now we'll ask the same of our guests, Deputy Chief Barnes and Officer Magney. Yeah, well, well, for me, you know, you have to understand that at the end of the day, when we come home, I mean, uh, uh, literally at the end of the day, when we come home, we take off our uniform but we cannot take off our skin. So please understand that we still live and work in and um, have been to places in uniform and been treated like a king. And I've been to the same places out of uniform and been treated as if I was bothering someone. Um, and so these uh, incidences affect us because um, number one, it, just like anyone else, we get angry when we see them, but because we're police officers, and more importantly, because we're also social scientists, we don't really rush to judgment. Um, I'm sure Obed has gotten the same calls that I've gotten from friends. Hey, what's going on here? What's going on there? But as a scientist, you know, you have to uh, look at the uh, incident and its totality, but it affects you because, you know, I have a son and I, I certainly uh, will worry about him at the time he becomes um, um an adult or a young adult when he's out there by himself. So it does affect us in that we get that emotion, emotional rush like everyone else, but because we're police officers and because we're scientists, we try to wait until all the facts are in. Okay. okay. Uh, and now I'm gonna get into the, um, the and, reason why we're here. Did you wanna add something, Obed? No, uh, I was just going to add on top of what uh, Sean said. The other part of that is that because we are in a position of influence and because we do have a platform, we also understand that we have that added responsibility of making sure and ensuring that when we talk about a more just system mm -hmm. with gathering all the facts and so on and so forth, 
um, that we're on the forefront of a lot of these things. Um, it's important that, you know, Sean himself, other leaders such as us uh, are not silent during these times of unrest, uh, because I think silence is seen as complicity. And I tend to agree with that. And I know, like I said, Sean's working on, you know, really hard on a lot of things and Tarek's doing the same thing as well as myself. So just wanted to add that uh, we have that added responsibility of making sure that our voice is heard for everyone. During their 2020 Selma to Montgomery journey, the law enforcement leaders, Deputy Sean Barnes, formerly with the Salisbury Police Department and now in Chicago, and Officer Obed Magney with the Sacramento Police Department were joined by Deputy Police Chief Tarek McGuire of the Arlington, Texas Police Department. Deputy Police Chief McGuire was called into duty shortly before our taping and could not join us for the podcast. However, the gentlemen both acknowledge how influential his participation was. The journey the three men took commemorated the 1965 Selma to Montgomery March, which came about when Marion, Alabama church deacon and local activist Jimmy Lee Jackson was shot by an Alabama state trooper inside a cafe where protesters retreated after being run off and beaten by state troopers. Upon entering the cafe, Jackson was shot in the stomach. Jackson was a veteran on furlough and attempted to stop officers from beating his mother and grandfather when he was shot for interfering. And picked Jimmy up off the floor and shoot him in a corner and actually shot him in the side. Just took a pistol and stuck it inside and shot him. And as he ran up that hill, they continued to beat him. And he ran just beyond the church and fell between the church and the post office. The state trooper involved was not charged for his, this act until 2007. In November of 2010, the former state trooper, James Bernard Fowler, pled guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to six months in jail. Obed Magney picks up the conversation discussing this event. So, Jimmy Lee Jackson was shot and killed by a police officer. And that was kind of like the powder keg of everything that took place with the march from Selma to Montgomery. We were gonna do this march back in, we were gonna do this walk back in March. And because of COVID, it got pushed back. And then the George Floyd thing pushed everything back to when we did this walk last week. So <clears throat> we were already going to be doing this, but it got pushed back and it got pushed back and it got pushed back. Those incidences of, you know, George Floyd and Jimmy Jackson and bringing all that together, this is just coincidence. And I'm sorry if I'm you know, going off topic a little bit, but the killing of Jimmy Lee Jackson, unfortunately, we've seen this movie too many times, right? So the reason why we came together is we wanted to recognize the civil rights movement, those who marched, those who fought for voting rights and so on and so forth. And we wanted to pay tribute to those people and let them know that their work was not in vain. And you got guys like myself, and you got Sean, and you got Tark, who obviously believe in those rights. And we believe in a justice system that works for everyone. And doing this walk was just the beginning of us starting that conversation, moving the conversation forward. Uh, so we're right, we're seeing this movie again, all over again, as we saw it in Wisconsin. And there have been other incidences between the George Floyd killing and with what happened uh, with Jacob Blake. 
Cell phone video captured Groner pleading that he couldn't breathe as Officer Daniel Pantaleo held him in a deadly chokehold five years ago. Pantaleo was not charged in the criminal case. So, you know, this walk wasn't supposed to be like the end all and be all. This is just more of the three of us wanting to do something proactively, you know, to, you know, to bring light that policing has to change. Reform needs to take place. We can't sit back and just you know, wait for the change to take place. We have to proactively do something about it. So that's kind of the start of how all this thing, how all this uh, began. Are, are you not in fear of maybe violating that blue code when, when you're speaking out in this way? No, because when you're speaking truth to power, you're speaking truth to power. I mean, if you offend a couple people here or a couple of people there, but you know what you're doing is just and what you're right. I mean, that's that's the... That's to be expected, right? So you had people walking from the bridge in Selma who were met with the violence and brutality at the Edmund Pettus Bridge because they were trying to stand up for what was right and what was just. And if you think about any great feat in this world, not even here in the United States, nothing, nothing great has ever taken place without some form of struggle or adversity or anything like that. So, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but I think... Every good cop will tell you, um, when you're doing the right thing, when you're doing the just thing, if that's not controversial, then they probably shouldn't be in this profession. Okay. Deputy Chief Barnes, all right, help paint the picture. You, you know you're about to embark on this journey. Uh, what, what are you thinking? Am I in shape? Do I need to get in shape? Uh, beforehand, what's the preparation looking like? Yeah, I, you know, that's such a great question. I, I, I appreciate you doing that. You know, one of the things that we discovered, um, Rodney, in doing this is that um, we 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 tried to prepare physically. So, you know, I think the the most I walked was six, uh, even though our schedule was to walk 20 miles a day. Uh, so that proved to be uh, a little bit inadequate. Um, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, you know, we prepared for water. I brought this really fancy camel pack. I couldn't figure out how to work it. And so in mile six, all the water had run down my back and into my shoes. Uh, so I was ill-prepared there. Um, I was ill-prepared um, in uh, sunscreen because it was so overcast. Uh, I thought I didn't need it. Turns out the Alabama sun is ever-present. How hot is it? Uh, How hot is it? What was the hottest? I think uh, maybe 89, I think. But it, it, the sun is right is pretty close to you. I felt like, uh, yeah. So uh, when I got back, I had some sunburn uh, on my face. Um, and so, um, you know, with nutrition, it was kind of like, you know, we kind of ate what we want. At least I, I did um, because I knew we were going to burn those calories. But what I learned about this journey is that uh, we received a, um, a text from uh, Pastor uh, Leota Strong who is the pastor at Brown AME, the church where this all uh, began so, so many years ago. Um, and it's interesting to note, you mentioned earlier, how does this relate to North Carolina? Well, Pastor Strong was the head chaplain at the VA hospital in Salisbury, North Carolina for some number of years, over five plus years. So there's that North Carolina connection there. But he sent us a text and said, hey, I know you conditioned. But he said, please understand that this is a spiritual journey. It's not a physical journey. 
And so, Ronnie, when we were walking and the sun was peeking through the clouds and the 89 turned into 92, you know, for two, three, four miles, um, you didn't notice it. You know, when your feet started hurting uh, from the concrete or the asphalt, I should say, you know, you move over into the grass and, you know, probably didn't provide much, much cushion, but it felt like it did. Um, the camaraderie that we had between uh, us three as we walked, um, I forgot that the water was in my shoes, uh, those type things. You know, having a Bluetooth speaker, being able to listen to Sermon from the Mountaintop while we walked, being able to listen to Malcolm X's The Bullet or the Ballot, which is so apropos in 2020, which is an election year. Uh, those things kind of kept you going. We must, we must understand the politics of our community, and we must know what politics is supposed to produce. We must know what part politics play in our lives, and until we become politically mature, we will always be misled, led astray, or deceived or maneuvered into uh, supporting someone politically who doesn't have the good of our community at heart. So for a journey like this, the physical preparation is nothing compared to the spiritual or mental preparation. Because we walked, we all had different uh, brands of shoes, and I won't mention the brand unless they're giving money to social justice, and I don't know that they are. But what I will say is, I know I spent over 150 bucks on mine, and they probably did as well. But um, the shoes wasn't, it's not going to do it. What's in your heart? And to think that, you know, our ancestors, they walked in church clothes. Look at the photos. They were not dressed the way we were, but they saw a greater purpose. And that's what we wanted to see. Sean. And Obed and Sean, jump in. You know, you don't have to wait for me. If you step on, you won't step on my toes. So jump in because I wanted to be a, a conversation uh, mainly with the two of you all. Uh, but as you walk in, you start mile one, you see a hill. Uh, do you say, oh, here's a hill? And and when you, does doubt creep oh, in? Brother, let me tell you. <laughs> so, oh man, I don't know if we have enough time to even start that conversation. Um, we had hills upon hills upon hills <laughs> upon more hills. So that was the first thing. Uh, you know, something else that uh, Sean didn't uh, mention, you know, in addition to the heat, in addition to the humidity, in addition to, you know, our feet hurting and everything, there were a couple occasions where we had thunder showers and mm. we were getting soaked and we I were getting that. wet. And, you know, I'm sorry. I'm just saying I read that. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. So we, at, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we encountered a lot of the trials and tribulations because we can only imagine what it's like when you're wearing a suit and tie, right? Walking 54 miles. So with that being said, yes, it was definitely spiritual, but this walk was not easy. Mile one, we were all, you know, jumping around happy. I mean, we were over here, I'm playing games like I'm doing side steps, like I'm doing football drills, like, yeah, we're doing this, we're doing this. And uh, quickly was humbled after the miles started piling up. And I can tell you right now, there were days where I couldn't walk three feet in the hotel room from the bed to like the bathroom because uh you know my feet was hurting so bad and i know that the other two were hurting too but doubt was always 
overshadowed by the fact that the three of us were that motivated to finish this job, to finish this walk. Um, yeah, we were hurting, but the metaphor in all this was there are people hurting today. There were people hurting back then. There were people struggling for rights and, you know, they were being beat down. If you think about the weather, there were off, there was dogs chasing us across the freeway. We were trying to sprint to get away from them. And, you know, the doubt, we, there was never a question that we were going to finish this. We had to finish this. We had to finish this for each other. And we had to finish this for everybody else who wants to see a just system. And there was no way we were not going to finish this. It didn't matter what those obstacles were. Didn't matter if it was the weather elements. Didn't matter if it was dogs. Didn't matter if, you know, our feet were hurting. We were definitely going to finish this. You've been listening to History Notes from Selma to Montgomery. This concludes part one of this two-part series. We've been talking with Deputy Chief Barnes and Officer Obed Magni, two of three African-American law enforcement leaders who walked the 54-mile journey commemorating the Selma to Montgomery March of 1965, which was in part triggered by the death of Jimmy Lee Jackson. We've compared the loss of life 55 years ago with similar losses suffered today and asked how black leaders in law enforcement choose to challenge and keep our democracy. Listen to part two of From Selma to Montgomery, where we'll talk about the trials, the drive, and the people they encountered during their trek. Parts one and two can be found at greensborohistory.org under the Discover and Learn tab.